Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In a ruling dividing the court down ideological lines, the Supreme Court once again strengthened religious rights over what the court says is governmental discrimination. In a 6-3 to three vote, the court ruled that Maine cannot exclude religious schools from a program that pays for private instruction in rural areas that lack public schools, opening the door to more use of public dollars for religious schools. Even during oral arguments, the conservative justices and the liberal justices had opposing views on just what constitutes discrimination on the basis of religion. Here are Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Sonia Sotomayor. And the first neighbor says, we're going to send our uh, child, children to secular private school. They get the benefit. The next door neighbor says, well, we want to send our children to a religious private school, and they're not going to get the benefit. And I don't see how your suggestion that the subsidy changes the analysis. That's just discrimination on the basis of religion. These parents are put to do the same choice that every other parent in Maine is put to, either get a free public secular education or pay for your religious training. They're being treated as everybody else is. Joining me is Richard Garnett, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. What does this ruling stand for? Well, this decision reaffirms a principle that the justices have applied in several recent cases, and that is that the free exercise clause of the Constitution does not permit governments to exclude or to discriminate against religious entities or individuals when they're operating a benefit program or a funding program. So a simpler way of putting that, I suppose, might be that the free exercise clause of the First Amendment doesn't permit governments to discriminate against religion. And in the Carson case, the justices applied that principle to conclude that the state of Maine's policy, which is to allow parents in rural school districts to get public support to send their kids to some private schools, was unconstitutional because Maine denied similar benefits to parents if they chose a religious school. And the court said, relying on these recent precedents, that discrimination simply on the basis of the school's religious character violate the free exercise guarantee of, of the First Amendment. So I'm wondering if the court was extending precedents, too, because two years ago, in a case from Montana, the court ruled that states 
can exclude schools run by religious institutions when they're making tax money available, but didn't answer the question of whether it would matter if the schools actually offered religious instruction. Is the court now answering that question and saying that even teaching religion doesn't matter? Yeah, so the Montana case you mentioned, and then one a few years before that out of Missouri called Trinity Lutheran. In those cases, the program that was challenged had involved discrimination on the basis of what the court called religious status. In those cases, the people who were challenging the programs had been excluded entirely because of religious affiliation or religious nature. And the court in each of those cases was able to say, look, we don't have to decide in this case whether the result would be different if the entity in question also was engaged in religious activity or instruction and so on. And so in in yesterday's case, Carson versus Macon, the court clarified and made explicit the fact that, well, if you, if you discriminate against the school because of its religious activities or instruction or policies, that's the same thing as discriminating against it on the basis of religion. And so the same principle applies. The CEO of Americans United for a Separation of Church and State, Rachel Laser, said the court is forcing taxpayers to fund religious education. Is this making taxpayers fund religious education? Well, uh, so <laughs> no, because the court was very careful to say that states don't have to fund religious schools if they don't want to. But once a state decides that it wants to fund some private education, then it can't discriminate against religious schools. Now, the upshot of that is that indirectly, because you know the state will assist parents to choose to send kids to school where they will receive religious instruction, indirectly, the parents' decision to seek out religious instruction is being supported. But I think that quote leaves out the important part that it's it's up to the state to decide whether it wants to open up funding programs to private schools. Once the state makes that decision, it then can't exclude schools simply because they're engaged in religious instruction. And of course, states indirectly pay for some religious education all the time. You know, the the GI Bill for more than 70 years has been paying for people to attend Boston College and Notre Dame. So I think the language of forcing overlooks the point that it's it's the state's choice whether or not to create a program that's open to some private schools but not others. So this was a six to three decision down yeah. ideological lines. So. Yeah. Uh, in her dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor sort of lamented how far the court has moved in five years since the Trinity Lutheran case. Quote, in 2017, I fear that the court was leading us to a place where separation of church and state is a constitutional slogan, not a constitutional commitment. Today, the court leads us to a place where separation of church and state becomes a constitutional violation. Yeah, so uh, clearly Justice Sotomayor just understands what separation of church and state is differently than the majority of the justices. So I, I think in her view, I mean, Justice Sotomayor disagrees with 20 years of court precedents permitting school vouchers and so on. And I think in her view, any support for parents who choose to send their kids to religious schools is a church-state violation. But the court rejected that view 22 years ago. It is true that since Trinity Lutheran, these last five years, we have seen a, a pretty important, interesting, some people don't like it, of course, 
development, which is the court has said not only may school voucher programs include religious schools, they've added to that this non-discrimination rule that once you create a funding program, you then can't discriminate. But the premise of Justice Sotomayor's language there, I think, is that, you know, the indirect support, or put differently, supporting parents' decisions to choose religious schools for their children violates church-state separation. That certainly has been a view that that many people have held over the last several decades, but it, it hasn't been the rule in the court for a long time. Justice Breyer brought up the fact that both these schools have admissions policies that allow them to deny enrollment to students based on gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, and religion. Justice Roberts addressed, I think, in a footnote. Should that have been addressed? Should Maine be able to look at what's happening in the schools? Well, it's a tricky question. On the one hand, um, this case did not involve question whether Maine, if it wanted to, could have a rule that in order to participate in the tuitioning program, a school has to have, you know, an open admissions policy, say. Justice Breyer concedes that religious schools have the right to admit students and hire teachers on the basis of their religious teachings. And again, the state is not directly subsidizing these schools. That's kind of a misunderstanding. What the state is doing is assisting parents who live in districts without high schools to get their kids educated, and their kids have a constitutional right under Maine's constitution to a publicly funded education. And so I think Justice Roberts' point in that footnote was that the question of these schools' particular policies about curriculum or admissions and so on are not really relevant to the question that was presented here. I suspect there'll be people in Maine who will consider whether or not to revise their program so as to add new conditions to the support, but that wasn't the issue presented in this case. And I think Justice Roberts is also sort of suggesting that it would be suspect to be denying funding to religious schools simply because one didn't like those schools' particular religious practices or beliefs. But that issue is clearly not going away, the issue of the conditions that attach to the money. This case was just about whether or not Maine could exclude these schools from the program altogether. There'll be other controversies, whether in Maine or somewhere else, setting up the question whether or not legislatures can attach these regulatory strings to the support that they provide the parents. About 37 states have amendments to their constitutions that bar government funding of religious institutions, including schools. Are those now invalid? Well, it's interesting. These are sometimes called the Blaine Amendment. As you say, they're provisions that many of the states added to their constitutions. Many of them, as a historical matter, were specifically designed to make sure that Catholic schools didn't get any funding. Because, of course, at the time these provisions were enacted, the public schools were still religious. They were just Protestant. One implication of these last three decisions, these last five years, including Carson's, is that If a state has a constitutional provision that purports to require discrimination against religious schools, then that state provision cannot be enforced. That is, the um, First Amendment's free exercise clause trumps that. Now, it's important to note that in many of the states that have these Blaine Amendments, the state courts have interpreted them in such a way as to permit indirect aid or you know, support for parental choice and so on. So it's not really the case that all of these provisions are interpreted in the same way or that they're equally strict. But that said, 
yes, it appears to be the case now that if a state has one of these provisions that has been interpreted strictly, you know, no indirect aid to education in parochial schools, period, then the court's free exercise ruling trumps those provisions. Some uh, proponents of strong separation between church and state are fearful that the next step could be requiring states to subsidize religious education regardless of whether they provide alternative school choice funding. Do you think that's the next step? As a preliminary matter, I should just register that I think this is not a debate about whether the separation of church and state is important. Certainly, I I believe that it's crucial to distinguish between religious and political authority. It's, It's more a debate about what the separation of church and state actually means. Does it actually mean that the governments can never cooperate with religious entities in order to help accomplish the common good? I, in my experience, most people don't think that you know Medicare should refuse to fund the care of people at a religiously affiliated hospital. Most people think it's fine for the government to cooperate with Catholic charities to help resettle refugees. So this cooperation is not a violation of the church-state separation principle, in my view. So then the next question is, well, what forms of cooperation are permissible? What forms of cooperation might be required? The language of the opinion is pretty clear that this decision is about discrimination once the court has decided to open up funding to public uh, public and private institutions, and it, uh, at least by its terms, doesn't create any entitlement for school choice or for school uh, religious school funding outside of that context. But it is an interesting question. I mean, people have raised, you know, in academic debates and in political debates for years, have been saying, you know, why should people who choose religious schools for their kids, in a sense, have to pay twice if the schools are providing a public benefit, namely education? You know, why shouldn't that benefit be supported in the same way that it is at a government-run school? You know, if the goal is public education, why should it matter where that education takes place? So I think the policy arguments for supporting parental choice, regardless of who owns the school building, uh, I think those policy arguments are pretty strong. But in terms of the holding in yesterday's case, uh, it does not extend that far. I'm seeing a lot of articles being written about how this will affect charter schools. Yeah, charter schools are fascinating because um, it's not quite clear what they are, right? So on the one hand, um, we often think of charter schools as being just you know public schools with less regulation, but still government-run schools. And if, if that's what they are, namely government-run schools, then they can't be religious. Um, and similarly, if the government-run schools, then, you know, churches can't operate them as religious schools. I suppose they could operate them as secular schools. The wrinkle is that a number of courts have said that charter schools aren't really government schools, that instead they are, um, well, they're chartered. They're they're publicly um, subsidized and funded, but they are um, non-state operated. And on that vision, you might think, well, why, why couldn't a religious organization or a church operate a charter school and receive the same charter funding. Again, that's not where the law is yet, but this is something, you know, for people to keep their eye on and take a great uh, interest in. You know, what, what do we think charter schools really are? And if they're private, then today's ruling might suggest that the government shouldn't be able to exclude religious groups from participating in the charter sector. But Again, on the other hand, if they are 
government schools, then it's certainly permissible for the government to, to, to treat them as such and to not permit them to be run by churches. Any final thoughts, Rick? It's worth noting uh, with, with yesterday's decision, the extent to which Chief Justice Roberts in particular has built up over his time on the court a really significant body of law and religion opinions. You know, in addition to this non-discrimination trilogy of, of cases that we were talking about, you know, he, he wrote a very important decision in the Hosanna Tabor case about church autonomy. He had an important Religious Freedom Restoration Act case early in his tenure. I think that it's obviously early to be speculating about legacies and so on, but one of the places in which the Chief Justice has really made a mark has been with the religion clauses. And that's something that I find interesting. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Rick. That's Professor Richard Garnett of Notre Dame Law School. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The Supreme Court rejected a multi-billion dollar appeal from Bayer, refusing to shield the company from potentially tens of thousands of claims that its top-selling Roundup weed killer causes cancer. 
On Tuesday, the justices left intact a $25 million award to Edwin Hardiman, a California man who said decades of exposure to Roundup caused his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was the first federal trial to question whether glyphosate, which is Roundup's active ingredient, causes cancer. Bayer had said a Supreme Court ruling in its favor would effectively and largely end Roundup litigation in the United States by dissuading future lawsuits. Joining me is Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. So, Greg, tell us about Edwin Hardiman and his jury verdict. Edwin Hardiman is a California man who said he was exposed to Roundup over decades and that caused non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, His case went to trial and he won. Uh, he was originally awarded by jurors more than $80 million. Uh, trial judge cut that to $25 million, and that was upheld by a federal appeals court. And that's what Bayer took up to the Supreme Court, trying to get them to review. So what was Bayer's argument as to why the Supreme Court should take its case? Bayer's argument was basically that the label, the safety label on Roundup was approved by federal regulators. That meant Hardiman's suit couldn't go forward. Bayer argued that federal regulators had concluded that the active ingredient in Roundup, glyphosate, doesn't cause cancer. And the legal question was whether a California law a California failure to warn law could nonetheless serve as the basis for a lawsuit. Um, Mr. Hardiman and his lawyers said, you know, the federal government never approved or cleared glyphosate with other ingredients, never said that that wouldn't cause cancer. And so they said that allowing the suit to go forward wasn't at all inconsistent with what the federal government was required. The justices sought the Department of Justice's view. Where did the Justice Department come out? Yeah, the Justice Department, the Biden administration, urged the Supreme Court to reject the Bayer appeal. Uh, They said that people who used Roundup shouldn't be barred, despite the fact that the federal regulators approved the safety label. They said that the lower courts were right, that these types of lawsuits were basically only trying to enforce a requirement that is parallel to what's required under federal law. Bayer said that respectfully disagrees with the Supreme Court's decision. The company is fully prepared to manage the litigation risk associated with potential future claims in the U.S. So how much has it set aside for litigation? It has set aside a total of $16 billion, and uh, the rejection of this appeal may cost it as much as $3 billion of that $16 billion. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence analyst Holly Frum uh, estimated that's what it would have saved Bayer had the Supreme Court taken up this case and ruled in favor of the, of the company. Bayer is now saying it's got a few other arrows in its quiver, uh, a few other issues that might be able to argue and, and potentially get to the Supreme Court and maybe trim that bill a little bit. Yeah. Is there another roundup case pending before the Supreme Court with a different argument? There is. It's another California case. 
that has both the same argument, and one would anticipate the Supreme Court would reject that since they rejected it in the Hardeman case, but it also has an additional argument about punitive damages. This is the case where a couple was awarded $70 million in punitive damages. Bayer argues that that is so big, uh, it's about four times the amount of compensatory damages in the case. They argue that's so big it violates the Constitution. So that is at least potentially an issue that the Supreme Court might uh, want to take up. Yeah, and all the roundup cases that Bayer lost were in California courts. It's won four of seven trials so far, the most recent last Friday. Let's turn now to the Supreme Court docket. The court said it was going to issue decisions on Tuesday, which it did, and Thursday, and now it's added another decision day, Friday. Do you think that they're you know, trying to rush to a conclusion and they'll finish this week or will still be into next week? I think we'll almost certainly still be into next week. The court still has 13 opinions to go. They almost certainly will issue more of them on Monday of next week. Uh, Really what's been happening over the last couple of weeks is the court was way behind its normal schedule in terms of issuing opinions. And so they've been clearing out a lot of the backlog. And, you know, if they head into next week with, say, six opinions to go, that would be kind of typical for where they are this time of year, and, and that would be the kind of thing that you could expect them to deal with on, on maybe a, a couple days next week. So let's talk about some of the cases that are outstanding. Greg, let's start with the most anticipated case, the decision on Mississippi's ban on abortions. And I mean, usually you see these really hot-button issue, controversial cases the last week of the term. This seems like it might be a last week or a last day of the term case. Yeah, we're, we're really getting deep into speculation when we try to say exactly when we think opinions are going to come out at this stage. But having said that, I've always uh, felt that because of, of how explosive that issue is, the abortion issue is, that, that the last week and perhaps even the last day is, is very, very possible. The case, of course, is challenging a 15-week abortion ban uh, in Mississippi and uh, the court is potentially going to use it to overturn the Roe v. Wade, a landmark Roe v. Wade abortion rights decision that legalized abortion nationwide. A, a leaked draft opinion that Politico published uh, would, would go take that step, would overturn Roe v. Wade. And the real question is whether behind the scenes Chief Justice John Roberts has been able to convince uh, any of his colleagues, more conservative colleagues, perhaps Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett, to join with him in a narrower opinion that perhaps would uphold the Mississippi law without going all the way and uh, and overturning Roe. Then we have the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association case, and this is the oldest case, the oldest outstanding case that the court has. Tell us why it might be being held. Yes. Well, you know, it, it's going to be the biggest uh, Second Amendment case in more than a decade. And uh, so much like with the abortion case, you can imagine that the justices really think that, they, that the, what they are writing, both in the majority and in dissent, is exceptionally important, and they want to uh, do everything they can to make it as good as they can. This is a case that 
based on the argument, is likely to establish that the Second Amendment applies outside the home. The court has only said previously that it allows you to have a handgun with you in the home for self-protection purposes. There are a handful of states, six to eight states, that make it very difficult, uh, make it such that most people cannot get a license to carry a handgun in public. New York is one of those. Uh, Some other big states as well, like California, are among them. And from the sound of the argument, the court was going to say that those restrictions are unconstitutional. And then if that happens, the question will be, how much room does the court leave for the government to carve out so-called sensitive areas where uh, the government can say, even though you have a right to carry a handgun, you can't bring it in here. You can't bring it into this courthouse. You can't bring it into this school. Maybe you can't bring it into the sports stadium or, or into Times Square on New Year's Eve. A lot of those were examples that came up during the argument. So that's probably going to be the thing that we are looking closely at to understand the reach of this decision. Then we have an EPA case that's drawing a lot of attention. So that's West Virginia v. EPA. Yeah, this is a case that surprised a lot of people that the court agreed to take it up because the Biden administration hasn't yet issued a plan through the EPA for reducing greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. But uh, there's some litigation going on over the first the Obama plan to do that and then the Trump effort to repeal the Obama plan. And the Supreme Court decided it wanted to get involved in that case and potentially lay out some limits on what the EPA can do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from from power plants. The, the Obama administration tried to do that in part by shifting power generation away from from coal-fired power plants to renewable sources like uh, solar and wind. And uh, it's possible the Supreme Court will say that sort of thing is beyond the authority of the EPA. They have to focus whatever they're going to do on particular facilities. Maybe they can require equipment at particular facilities, but they can't try to do a big economy-wide shifting of power production. They issued a couple of decisions already in immigration-related cases. But the big one that people have been watching is the one concerning the Trump Remain in Mexico policy. Yeah, this one is procedurally pretty complicated, but the bottom line may not be. Essentially, lower courts, including the Supreme Court, have required the the Biden administration to re-implement the, the Trump policy that required asylum applicants to wait in Mexico while their applications are being processed, or at least a lot of asylum applicants have to do that. The question at the Supreme Court is basically whether the Biden administration can rescind that policy. And kind of the core issue is that federal immigration law says that the people who are seeking asylum uh, are supposed to be detained while they wait. Well, everybody knows that there's not enough detention capacity to do that. And so the question is really, what does the administration have to do with the people that it doesn't have space to detain? Can they release them into the country and you know, require them to come back for their, for their asylum hearings? Or must they send them back to the country they came through, in this case, Mexico? The arguments were uh, more or less inconclusive in that case, but there are a lot of procedural ins and outs, and so it, it potentially could be, could be complicated. And we have the case of the football coach who wants to pray after games on the 50-yard line. 
Yeah, so this is the case that this coach lost his job. Uh, his contract was not renewed after he repeatedly would take a knee in midfield in games. He's a, he's a high school football coach in Washington State. And the question is whether that violated his First Amendment rights, either his speech rights or his religious rights. And the school district said a number of things uh, in, in response. It, it has argued that there's a potential that he is uh, coercing students into taking part in, in those midfield prayers after games. And it also argues that he's essentially still... Um, if not on duty, he's still taking part in an event that we are sponsoring, and we have the right to uh, control that event, this football game that we're put, put, putting on, and for him to make a spectacle of himself is something that we are allowed to, to prohibit. This is a, a Supreme Court, as we saw this week, with a case involving school funding that is very favorable towards religious rights. The argument certainly sounded like the court was uh, predisposed to side with the football coach and bolster the ability of teachers and staff at public schools to uh, pray in at least somewhat public areas. Thanks so much, Greg. I know you're going to be very busy until the end of June. That's Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.